our, our sermon this morning is from Genesis chapter 22, uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles as we do, as we begin. I want you to think about uh, the most significant or the, the most prized or the most valued thing that you've ever had to, to give up or that you have ever been asked to, to give up, right? Maybe someone close to you needed something. And you had to, to give them something of yours that you really want. Maybe it was like Lent and you decided to give up chocolate or, or coffee or something like that. Or I want you to think about something significant, something that you love, something that you value, um, and that you had to give up for one reason or another. And the story today is one of Abraham uh, being called to give up his own son, his own child. God calls him to kill his son, right? The, the son that he and Sarah had waited their entire life for, that they loved and prized and cherished more than anything else in the world. God calls him to offer his son up as a sacrifice. And what we'll see in our story together uh, is that uh, it has everything to do with the, the faithfulness of God. It has everything to do with the providence of God. It has everything to do with how God provides for his people. And ultimately, it has everything to do with the person and work of Jesus. And how in Christ, God has come to us to offer himself as a sacrifice for us to save us from our sin. So I am going to read through Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, and then we're going to just work through it. Uh, together over the next few minutes. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac. And he took his hand and the fire and the knife. So they both went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the altar and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on this time together in your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you in it. We pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that you would give us a, uh, a flame and, and a passion to love you more because of what we read in your word. King Jesus, we ask you to, to meet us here and to speak to us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we'll start with uh, verse 1. It says, after these things, it's worth noticing right from the, right, the, the, the things that are being referred to in uh, chapter 22, verse 1, is everything that we've read from Genesis chapter 12 up through Genesis chapter 21. So chapter 12, God calls Abraham. Abraham promptly lies and sends his wife Sarah to go sleep with Pharaoh. Uh, Genesis 15, God reiterates his promises to Abraham and enshrines them into a covenant. Chapter 16, uh, you know, Abraham goes and sleeps with Hagar. Chapter 17, God reiterates his promises to Abraham again and establishes the sign of circumcision to reflect those promises. Chapter 20, Abraham lies again and sends his wife to go sleep with Abimelech. Chapter 21, Isaac is born and Abraham sends uh, Ishmael away. So after all of these things and all of this drama and all of this tension, when the dust all settles, we're left with Abraham and his wife Sarah and their son Isaac. And the pieces are finally arranged so that God's promises can be fulfilled and Abraham and Sarah, their plan, right? Because they're Abraham is over a hundred. Sarah is pushing one hundred. So their plan at this point is just to, to ride it out. We've got our son, so we're gonna we're just going to ride it out, get him to adulthood, and then gracefully uh, step aside. But but God has other plans. So after these things, God tested Abraham. So God says Abraham needs a trial in his life. He needs a he needs a hardship. He needs a fork in the road. He needs a difficult moment where he can sort out in his own heart whether or not he actually loves me, whether or not he actually trusts in me. Right? Right now we're in the realm of of the hypothetical, right? Where where Abraham says that he trusts me, but we need to bring it into the actual where where he proves it with his actions and he sees his own actions with his own two eyes. So God tests Abraham. Now, uh, it's, it's helpful to remember here that testing is not the same as uh, tempting. Those are two different things. God tests his people, like here in Genesis 22, but he doesn't tempt his people. And James chapter 1 is a helpful, uh, is, is helpful here, right? James chapter 1 verses 2 and following says, uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, so God tests his people when he allows trials to come into their life. Difficulty, hardship, circumstances where they're forced to, to trust him. So it means for, God's, for God to test his people. But the intended outcome of when God tests his people is uh, steadfastness and sanctification, becoming complete, growing toward perfection where you lack nothing. God tests his people so that they'll grow in godliness and persevere through them. 
when you experience suffering and hardship in your life, God does that on purpose. God does that so that you'll lean on him, trust in him, and grow closer to him as you walk through it. And that's different than tempting. Because later in James chapter 1, uh, in verse 13, we read, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted with evil and God does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So immediately following his explanation of testing, James discusses temptation. Testing is suffering allowed by God, intended to help us grow. Temptation is not that. Temptation is evil. Temptation uh, is, is done by Satan, according to Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. Right, Our, our, our sinful nature allows us to be enticed and tempted, but not God. And so while testing from God results in sanctification and spiritual growth, temptation from Satan results in sin and death. And yet... Uh, even though temptation is not from God, even though it's from Satan, and even though it's from our sinful nature, God is still sovereign over temptation. God still uh, can and does help his people when they are being tempted. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God tests his people so that they will grow, whereas Satan tempts people in an attempt to try and, and kill them. But even when Satan does that, God still can and does strengthen his people so that they can resist temptation from Satan. So God tests Abraham and he says, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. We're going to see that phrase over and over in this text. Here I am, right? I'm here. I'm listening. I'm at your disposal. Verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wow. Take your son, your, your only son, offer him as a... This is one of the craziest, most scandalous things that God ever calls anyone to do in, in all of scripture. I want you to take your son. I want you to murder him so that it will prove to you and to me that you love me. The son that you are obligated to protect and to provide for, right? I mean, morally it's, it's sinful and wrong to abuse your children, it's sinful and wrong to abandon your children. You're, you're, you're obligated to them biologically, right? You you share 50% of your DNA. You share with this other person. You have this biological instinctive urge that God has put inside of you to, to take care of him. That's a big reason why the human race still exists. And spiritually, right? Like this, this relationship between a father and a son is intended to reflect the relationship between God and his people, and so when, when you love your kids, uh, you're, you're actually worshiping God and you're making God look good. And when you refuse or fail to love your kids, you are 
uh, bringing the name of God into disrepute. And so there's all of these reasons why, why Abraham is called to love and protect his son. And God says, I want you to take this son that you're obligated to love and protect. I want you to murder him. But it's not just uh, that. It's also that this son, Isaac, is the son of the promise, right? This is the, this is the promised one that God promised Abraham all those years ago that God is going to raise up a nation from. God is saying, take the son that I promised that's going to be the forefather of the nation that I promised and, and kill him. And Abraham has to be thinking, but God, remember, uh, you know, 40 plus years ago when you called us out of Babylon, you said you'd make us into a great nation. And then, then we had to wait around for 25 years with no children. And finally, we had a child when I was 100 years old. Remember all of that? Well, listen, that God, that was a, a long shot, right? This idea that I would be the father of a nation when I'm 99 years old and we have no kids and my wife has experienced infertility her entire life, that idea of a nation coming from us was quite the long shot. But you know what's even less likely than that? For you to raise up a nation from my offspring when I kill my own child. How in the world are you going to raise up a nation from my offspring if I kill the only son that I have? It's similar to when God instituted the covenant of circumcision. right? God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of your offspring. And now, what I want you to do is take the one body part that you need to have children... And I want you to perform invasive surgery on it yourself with sharp tools, without any formal training. Abraham's got to be thinking, that's a pretty risky thing to do. I mean, what, what can I, why can't I cut my fingernails? And that can be the sign of the, of the covenant. Well, why don't, why don't I take my pinky toe? Right? I don't really use it that much. That can be the sign of the why, why do I have to get, get circumcised? God, if you want to raise up a nation, I have to have a child. And if I have to have a child, then that is the one part of my body that's most necessary. And God says, that's what I want. I want you to trust me and not yourself. And this is that same scenario all over again. God, if, if you want to raise up a nation, it has to be through my child. And if you want Isaac to grow up for the covenant line to go through him, then I can't kill him. That's crazy. There has to be some other way. And God says, that's what I want. And you have to trust me, not yourself. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. So, so they get up early in the morning. Right, if, if, God, if God calls me to take a three-day journey to kill my own son, and he says, I want you to leave tomorrow morning, I'm pro I probably would have slept in. Abraham gets up early in the morning, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So Abraham is, is nearing 120 years old at this point. He's out in the backyard swinging an axe, chopping firewood. At 120 years old. 
And if we're reading the book of Leviticus, uh, we see that there's five different kinds of, of offerings. There are burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. And they all are performed slightly different. They have, they have different nuances. They signify different things. But the burnt offering was the, was the only one. It was the one with the largest fire, the most fuel, the most wood. It was the only one where the sacrifice itself was completely consumed. There was nothing left. So this would have been a lot of fuel, a lot of firewood that was needed. Chapter, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. So Abraham is traveling with his son Isaac, with his two servants for three days, multiple nights. They're having to stop, pitch a tent, set up camp, build a fire, sit around it. Abraham has to sit for day after day after day just alone with his thoughts 72 hours to rethink his decision, 72 hours to talk himself out of it, 72 hours to, to justify why it would be okay to disobey God. Right? This is crazy. God, God must have made a mistake. There's no way that God could really want me to kill my own son. Or the God that I know would never ask someone to do something like that. Right? You ever... You ever heard that one? I hear, I hear that one all the time today, right? I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, but my God would never say that he hates sin or, or the God that I know would never say that he punishes sinners with his wrath and, and judgment. I was like, actually, we don't, we don't have to worry about whether or not God would say those things. God has spoken and God did say those things. So Abraham is traveling. He would have every opportunity to second guess, every opportunity to change his mind, every opportunity to go back home and to pretend like nothing ever happened. Right? Imagine, imagine the hardest, most difficult thing that anyone could ever ask you to do or give up, whether it's your child or something you love or uh, some lifelong goal or ambition something you love more than anything else in the world. Imagine you have to give it up. And imagine on top of all that, that in order to give it up, you have to travel three days and be alone inside your own mind thinking about it. Verse five, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. So we're going to go worship then we're going to come back to you. Which is interesting because it's just Abraham and Isaac, and a knife, and some wood. Our church gets all kinds of marketing materials and magazines in the mail from time to time. Uh, kind of like Office Depot for churches, basically. And I'll say on the cover, like, we sell everything that you need for worship. You know, you know guitars, drums, soundboards, speakers, screens, Advent candles, you know, Christmas reeds, everything that you would need to worship God, we can sell to you. Abraham uh, understands worship a little differently, right? Uh, he sees it as a lot less of an event or a concert and a lot more about sacrificial obedience to God, right? right? All I need to, to worship is just the thing that I love most in the world and then a heart that is willing to part with it in order to obey Jesus as my king. According to scripture, worship has everything to do with obedience and costly discipleship. And it has very little to do with 
putting on a concert or an event in a building somewhere. Terry Ram says, I and the boy, uh, we will go over there and worship and come again to you. This is also interesting because it gives us some, some insight into the mindset of Abraham at the time. Abraham doesn't say, we will go worship and then I will bury my son and then I, singular, will come back to you alone. He says, we will go worship and then we will come again to you. So Abraham is trusting that God will intervene, right? And, and you know, provide a sacrifice to die instead of Isaac. Or perhaps, uh, like we see in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Abraham believed that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. So Abraham still believed that God would make a nation out of Isaac, even if he had to go through with sacrificing him, because Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac. And he took him in his hand, and the fire, and the knife, and they both went together. So this here gives us a little clue into how old Isaac actually was at the time. right? We, we know for sure that he is between the ages of 2 and 37, because according to Genesis 21 verse 8, uh, Isaac had already been weaned, so he would have been, you know, that would have been when he was around 2, maybe a few years old. Um, but we also know that he was less than 37, because he's 37 years old when uh, Sarah dies, according to um, Genesis chapter 23. So he's somewhere between 2 and 37. But what we can also see is that he's referred to repeatedly in the story using the word boy. So we can assume that he's probably you know, on the younger side of that spectrum rather than closer to 37. However, uh, we can see that he's not a, a, a really young boy, a small child, because he's old enough and he's big enough and strong enough to carry all of this firewood that Abraham uh, had, had cut. And so probably a teenager, maybe a young adult is probably what we're, we're looking at with, with Isaac here. And Abraham stacks all the wood onto Isaac's shoulders and Abraham, uh, you know, takes everything else. They proceed up the mountain. In verse 7, Isaac says to his father, my father... And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Which is a fitting question, right? In fact, it's arguably the predominant theme of the entire Old Testament. Where is the lamb for the offering? How does this situation get remedied? You've got a holy God. You've got a sinful people. God's wrath must be satisfied. People's sin must be dealt with. It must be done through sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice? Where is the lamb for the offering? You spend 39 books in the Old Testament looking and waiting for the lamb. In verse 8, Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. Which is also a fitting answer, right? And arguably the predominant theme of the New Testament, right? That God himself will provide the lamb for the offering. We spend 27 books in the New Testament unpacking that theological reality. That, that humanity is not going to provide their own lamb, their own offering, their own sacrifice. They're not going to manufacture a savior. They're not going to provide their own substitute. They're not going to engineer their own salvation. Right? Salvation 
comes from God to humanity. Every other religion is based on what humanity kind of manufactures and gives to God. My obedience, my righteousness, who I am, what I have done. But the gospel is based on what God has provided for humanity. Here is my son. Here is your savior. He's going to die for you. All you have to do is respond. All you have to do is receive. All you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in him. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? God himself will provide the lamb for his people. Verse 9, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So Abraham and Isaac scale uh, this mountain, the father who is about to sacrifice his only son and the, the, the faithful, obedient son carrying the wood for the sacrifice, willingly walking up the mountain to his own death out of obedience to his father. Abraham binds Isaac. Remember, Abraham is a teenager, probably pushing 20 years old at this point. And Abraham is a feeble old man, pushing 120 years old at this point. So, so Abraham is not going to bind Isaac to put him on the altar unless Isaac allows him to. Right? Isaac, will, Isaac could physically dominate Abraham if he wanted to. Doesn't have to allow himself to be bound, but he, he does. The son trusts the father. Even when the father is calling the son to do something terrible, something painful, something awful. Right? Even when it means suffering. Even when it means he's going to die. The son trusts the father. The son obeys the father. The son gives his life in accordance with the will of the father. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Spurgeon says about this verse, he said, Abraham, Abraham had had the knife with him for the whole journey. And, it, and the whole time it must have been a, a painful reminder of the terrible things that were going to happen at the culmination of this, this trip, just weighing him down. And he says, the knife had been cutting into Abraham's own heart the entire time. He says, unbelief would have left the knife at home, but genuine faith brings the knife. So Abraham has genuine faith. He's a, he's a flawed character to be sure. Right? We've seen that the past several weeks, but Abraham trusts God and he has genuine faith. So right as Abraham is about to slaughter his son in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Here's this character again, right? This, this angel of the Lord who speaks as God with the authority of God, right? Who, who seems to be speaking as if he is God himself appearing in human form, right? Seemingly a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of, of Jesus himself. And he says, here I am, verse 12. And he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he says, I have tested you and you've persevered. You have trusted me. Even when the situation seemed impossible, even when it called for the greatest of personal sacrifice, you trusted me and obeyed me. 
Verse 13, And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So, it actually happens exactly like Abraham told Isaac that it would. God himself provides the sacrifice to, to die instead of Isaac, to die in place of Isaac. Right, and this is kind of the, this is the first little seedlings that we see in the Bible of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, right? The substitute dies in place of another to atone and to, to satisfy the just, righteous requirement of a holy God. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, he called it, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Very similar to what Hagar did in Genesis chapter 21, the angel of the Lord appeared and he saved her and, and, and she says, God has seen me and I'm going to name this well, the well of the living God who sees me. And in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord appears and he intervenes and he saves Isaac and he saves Abraham from having to sacrifice his own son and, God, and Abraham says, God has provided I am going to name this mountain, the Lord will provide. Which is a reality that we see vindicated over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. And in our lives to this day, the, the Lord will provide. The Lord has provided. The Lord does provide. Trust in God to provide. Trust God to make good on his promises, even when they appear implausible, even when they appear impossible, right? God, God's people can trust their heavenly father to provide for them because God is sovereign and God is good. And you when you look at this story, when you, when you zoom out and consider how God has provided salvation for his people, it is the most unlikely thing that you could ever imagine, right? God promises to save his people through a citizen of a nation that's going to come from the descendants of this one guy. But here's the catch. The one guy is really old. According to Romans chapter 4 verse 19, his body is as good as dead. He can't have kids. His wife is infertile. Her womb is a, a sarcophagus, right? And on top of all of that, God then has this old guy whose body is as good as dead perform this dangerous surgery on himself, which is going to call his ability to have children even further into question. And then after all that, when he does miraculously have a child, God is going to tell him to kill that child and offer that child as a sacrifice. It's like the story is being set up. It's being crafted. It's being kind of, uh, you know, it's on this trajectory to, to make the reader think this is impossible. There's no way that a nation is going to come from this man. There's no way that a Messiah is going to come from the descendants of this man. What are the odds? 10 to 1? A hundred to one? A million to one? 
Right? God, God is intentionally setting the stage so that, so that it's not just a, a long shot or an unlikely shot, but it's impossible. It is literally, Im- it's like, it's like the Hollywood Avengers movies where like all of the, you know, like the, the story is like, eh, there's no way the good guys can win. There's, the bad guys have already won. It would take a miracle for the good guys to win. And that's the Abrahamic covenant. Right? God makes this promise that is unlikely, that is impossible, and then God comes through and fulfills his promises. And all along the way, Abraham has to trust God. He has to trust God to do that which is impossible. And as Abraham climbed that mountain in the land of Moriah, it must have taken everything in him to keep going, everything in him to believe that God was going to fulfill his promises. And interestingly, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, the mountain of Moriah is the exact same mountain where the temple of the Lord would later be built by King Solomon. It's the exact same place where Solomon would build this huge building and God's people would come together. They would gather. The high priest would gather them all together in a big crowd. He would bring an innocent, spotless lamb and he would he would hold his hands on the head of the lamb and it would symbolize the transference of guilt and sin from the people of God to this innocent lamb. And then the lamb would be slaughtered as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. To to secure forgiveness from God. To satisfy the wrath of God for the sin of God's people. All of that happened in the temple. And the temple was on Mount Moriah. This mount right here where the Lord would provide. And as we continue reading into the New Testament, we see that everything that happened in the temple, the entire sacrificial system and all of the offerings and all the sacrifices that were offered to God, all of those were a foreshadowing of something that was to come later, a once for all, never need to be repeated sacrifice of Jesus himself for his people. Because one day there would be another father and another son. And that father would call that son to to place the wooden cross beam on his back and climb the mountain of Calvary where his own father would strike him down dead as a sacrifice, as an offering. And that son, like Isaac, willingly complied. He allowed, he allowed for the wooden cross to be piled on his shoulders and he, he walked up the mountain quietly and submissively and obediently because he trusted his father. He said to his father, uh, I, I don't want to drink of this cup that's in front of me, but I would rather your will be done than for my will to be done. And then when they, when they get to the place of the sacrifice, Uh, Unlike Abraham and unlike Isaac, there would be no turning back. There would be no interruption. There would be no intervention to save him. That son, Jesus Christ, would, would give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. In Christ, God himself has provided the lamb for the offering. God invites his people to trust in the lamb. God invites you to to look away from yourself and to turn away from your sin. 
and to look to Jesus to save you, the Lamb of God. God invites you to trust in His glorious provision of salvation instead of trying to accomplish it on your own to no avail. The, the Christian life flows entirely from believing and trusting in what God has provided and will provide, just as Abraham's story of obedience did in this passage. God has, has provided an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and God will provide complete liberation from sin and death one day. We can be confident of this because, as Romans 8.32 says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We, as God's people, we can trust God to provide for us because in Christ, God has already provided for us. God continues to provide for us. And our calling as the people of God is to look to him, right? To turn our eyes upon Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to trust in his provision as our all-sufficient Savior. And then to walk with him together as a covenant community, as a, as a church family together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who provides, right? that you provided a son for Abraham, that you provided a nation of descendants from Abraham, that you provided a Messiah through that nation, a savior who would offer himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sin and to satisfy the wrath of God that was meant for us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to look to you as the true and better Isaac who willingly submitted to the will of his father and gave your life for us. And as we do, Lord, we pray that we could enjoy your grace and your mercy and that we could walk in newness of life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.